Okay, I've been asked to, by Emily to look at the historical importance, the historical moment, and I use the word or the phrase historical moment because that's the way in which the media certainly presented it and wanted us to talk about the, uh, what was happening. And the reason it's logical, I think, that they should have seen it as a historical moment is, of course, with what I would call our fixation with Fidel um, over the decades. Not just our fixation, of course, and all American policy turned out to be fixated on Fidel as well. Um, in interesting ways, um, but also it's logical subsequently that having been fixated on Fidel even after he actually retired, the, we then had the fixation on Raoul. Not quite as much a fixation because he wasn't Fidel and there were all sorts of assumptions made there. Therefore it's perfectly logical that everybody will immediately fixate on Diaz-Canel because is he as good as, will he do the same sort of job, can he hold it together, and so on. All sorts of questions asked about the personality. Now, having said that, therefore, what I'm going to do is to structure this in a particular way with the four Ps. People, party, presidency, and power. All of which are highly questionable, I think. Uh, people I'll start with because that is our fixation. And it's particularly with, and I'm going to deal very briefly, those who heard me yesterday, I'm not going to do another potted history of Raoul. It will just be identifying some of the important things about him. Why was Raoul uh, the vice, senior vice president and what was he compared, for example, to Fidel? And I think what I would say is that it was relatively straightforward. He was the senior vice president because he became president when he was the last one standing. There were, remember, the three leaders at the start. Che Guevara, of course, dies in 67. Fidel retires. There's one left. There's actually a possible fourth one hanging around as well, but we'll come back to that. Um, but it basically was quite logical that he should be, but it, it, he wasn't there because he was Fidel's brother. He was there because of what he had done in the insurrection, his importance in the insurrection. He then goes on to be very significant. When you look at the process of the six, six decades, even before he came to power, he was significant. He was significant in defense. He was significant in relations with the Soviet Union. He was highly significant in the 1970s, the institutionalization process, and also subsequently, surprisingly perhaps, in the rectification process. And of course, most significantly of all in the 1990s, he's the one that drives, doesn't necessarily create, but that drives the economic strategy that effectively saves the revolution. So his importance is there. You should not have been surprised that he was going to be around, and providing he was on you know, compass mentis, and okay, he would be the, the next president. Uh, that was always straightforward. He was, I have to say, though, quite different from Fidel, and I don't know them personally, never knew them personally, but just the way they operated, the things they actually preferred, you come up with very, very different styles, and I've referred to them in the past as some way, sometimes as the tandem, that Fidel tended to gravitate much more to um, mobilization, mo mass mobilization, passion, to use a phrase that uh, Damian Fernandez used. It's a focus on things that you can do to get the ideological strength of the system moving. That's tended to be his preference. Raul, on the other hand, is a systems man, very clearly. He preferred, and always does prefer, and was did structures. He preferred accountability. He preferred the party quite simply, partly because unlike the mass mobilization, unlike the almost ad hoc process of the 60s at times, he preferred things to be structured, organized, because it meant that people were accountable. It meant that people participated. So his view was always system and efficiency and effectiveness rather than that, partly because he didn't do that, simply because he wasn't as good at the, that process of rallying as Fidel was. Um, so, very, very different. And uh, that brings us to the question of the second P, which is the party. Now, very quickly, I will say, of course, we expect the party to operate in a particular way because we saw uh, Eastern Europe before 1991, we see China, we know how parties operate within communist systems. Well, forget that when it comes to Cuba because it doesn't quite work like that. When the party was created, it was largely the creation of, and it remained the vehicle of, the ex-guerrillas, the 26th of July movement, at the top and at the bottom, that's how it operated. 
And it remained like that, in spite of all the changes, in spite of the years of relative proximity to the Soviet Union, it still remained largely that vehicle and largely dominated by the same people. And also the other side of it, it has a very checkered history. There have been times when the party has been ignored by the leader. There have been times when it has, the Congress has not happened because of disagreement within the, uh, the, the party itself, showing an unusual level of disagreement, in fact. And there have been times when it simply didn't do what it was told as well. Um, that one very obvious one was when Raoul came to power in 2008 and he could not persuade the party congress to be held. He was unable to do that. So the, it's a very checkered history and it certainly is not monolithic. But I think the important point was that that bothered Raoul. When he therefore came to power, he could see the party stagnating. That didn't work. That's not what he wanted. So he put, made a priority calling a congress in uh, the Congress, which was long overdue, it should have taken place in 2002, so it was already six years late, and it took another three years for him to get his way and to call the Congress only through threats. Now, I would make an important point there that the reason he needed that was because he wanted the authority of the party. He needed that authority. Fidel, remember, well, maybe you don't remember, didn't know, but Fidel did not actually retire from, as first secretary of the party when he retired as president. So he carried on being first secretary of the party for three more years. When it came to it, he actually said, well, I really meant to retire three years ago, but he nonetheless was there. So um, Raoul needed that authority, leadership, and he needed the authority also for his, um, for his reforms that he was pushing forward. So it worked. Finally, 2011, that happened. But what he then proceeded to do was to clip the party's wings. Having seen how much it stagnated, having seen how much it interfered in government, he made it a priority to remove the party from active involvement in government. He said that's not what its role is, we must remove it. And so everything he did with the party from that point onwards was focused on that. He, for example, renewed, got the party renewed at provincial level particularly. Most of the provincial leaders are new, they're mostly young, many of them are female. He changed the structure of that party or the personnel in the party to make it a different one. That, of course, is how Diaz-Canel came through, is from through the provincial parties. Um, I think Raul actually had a suspicion of Havana. Um, which Diaz-Canel is now trying to correct to some extent, but, at the, but I think that was part of the model. It was get outside that world of politicaria, get outside there and work through the system. He did that, and he also, um, I think, gave it a new authority. He made it clear that the uh, rector, the guiding, uh, the leading role of the party, the rector actually is guiding role. He talked about giving it authority as ideological guidance not active interference in government. Now, whether it does that or not is another matter, but that was what he wanted to do. So it means, incidentally, therefore, that the party is actually slightly weaker than it was, potentially, at least theoretically, slightly weaker than it was. So it's not necessarily the authority we expect. And, of course, he will be leader, remember, of that party for another three years. So that's an important point there. So that, the reason I say that's significant, incidentally, is that uh, since the uh, Helms-Burton legislation and all the legislation around it put the, the word Castro in the legislation saying that there cannot be an end to the embargo as long as there is a Castro in power, well, you can count him being in power, presumably, if you think the party runs everything. So don't hold your breath on that one. Um, that brings us to the presidency. So if I'm right about that and the party is slightly weaker than it was, the government and the presidency is actually stronger because what he did for those three years in particular when the party refused to do what he wanted it to do was he used the National Assembly, he used the government, a very much renewed, much younger and more, more talented government than before because he focused on appointing talented people rather than ideologically sound people. And therefore the net result was a quite different government from what people had been used to in the past, but also he strengthened the presidency. And that's the presidency that Diaz-Canel now occupies. So actually, rather than it being Fidel pulling, sorry, Raul running, pulling the strings and Diaz-Canel 
doing what he's told, which is what people, I think, have expected to some extent. And actually, Diaz-Canel didn't help himself by one of the first things he said after being elected was, I will go and consult Raul on the... the, the <laughs> not the best thing to do if you want to convince people that you're actually your own man, but one assumes he was being polite. Um, and so the, the point about that was that I think that the balance between presidency and um, leadership of the party has shifted a little bit. And I think we have some evidence of that as well. So it means that, brings us back to the question of power. That's the final P there. Because I think we're also a little bit fixated on that, partly because of the way we read communist systems in the past, or actually the way people have read Latin America, with notions of Caldeguismo and so on, that, that we tend to be fixated on control. A number of times we see it. I always get fed up with my students coming out with Castro did this and Castro did that, and I ban the C word completely. Uh, because the assumption is actually in the books they all read that actually these decisions were taken by him, that he actually banned this book and he actually banned that song. So there's, we, are, we seem to be fixated on that power. We need to know what it actually means. And I think the important point was that one of the things I've been doing in the last few years is doing a study of the ev evolution of the political structures in Cuba. And I say political structures because there are several of them. What I've tried to do in particular is trace the evolution of the, the evolution of the vertical structures of consultation and decision making in lots of different ways, party, um, government, ministries and so on, and match it against the horizontal layers of negotiation, because I think that's one of the things that really matters a lot in the whole system. I've always argued that it is essentially a negotiating system. Everybody, actually every Cuban negotiates constantly, every day, every part of their life, they are negotiating with somebody. And the, I think that's actually true in government as well. Government has had to negotiate. Look at Raul. When he came to power, he could not get the party to do what he wanted. He came up with a plan for uh, job losses, had to negotiate with the trade unions. He had to negotiate constantly. But actually, even in the past, Fidel had to negotiate sometimes with Raúl, sometimes with others. And Díaz-Canel will have to negotiate, quite clearly. Now, that's actually, I think, quite significant, because I think the, the issue about the system is not that it's about power. I think it's about authority. Who has authority, rather than who actually has power? Because it's negotiation, you actually have to have authority. You're listened to more than anybody else. With Fidel, it was easy. With Raúl, it was easy. They were the two historic leaders of the revolution. Therefore, it makes sense. And even when Fidel was retired, he still was respected. He still had to be respected and his views taken into account. Not necessarily followed, but taken into account. Not to do anything that he would have objected to, for example. One assumes that Raúl will find exactly the same position, that he will be consulted, he will be taken into account. Well, that's a problem for Diaz-Canel, of course, because what is his authority? That's the problem. He does not have the authority of the historic generation. He's got a different one. If we're coming back to the challenges, his challenge is trying to find a new authority. He's got some already. He has a reputation, you can correct me if I'm not, if I'm wrong, for being a listener. He has a reputation for being very effective as an administrator and a lead, local leader and being a negotiator. Well, that will come in handy, negotiating because that is really, I think, quite significant. One of the points about negotiating, by the way, is I was talking to someone yesterday about this, desperate to try and get uh, links with Cuba um, economically. I said, just take your time. Everything has to be negotiated, upwards, downwards, and sideways. It really is very, very difficult, which means nothing happens quickly, and therefore nothing will happen quickly. It's not likely to happen quickly anyway, because I think there's a three-year hiatus, while the, the process of change starts, uh, if it does, uh, nothing will change rapidly. Nothing can change rapidly because of the embargo. The embargo will not just affecting everything economically, but politically as well. So I don't see any significant change there. It will be more of the same, except that he's got to establish a new authority. He's got to make something significant, some sort of change which he can afford to do. I'm not going to predict what that will be, but there are several possibilities. He's got to say something that says, this is me, not Raoul. That will be tricky. 
But there was one interesting sign, and I'll finish on this. Last week, I think it was last week, it might have been the week before, there was a reunion de chequeo um, in Havana, which was checking up on all the programs of the revolution. There's a lot of that going on at the moment, appraisal, visiting different places to fight to see how the programs are running. The interesting thing was who was there. It was President Diaz-Canel and Vice President Salvador eh, Valdez Mesa. That was logical, so the presidency was, was there. The ministry, ministers were there, the deputy uh, leader of the Council of Ministers was there. Two people were there from the party. One of them was not Raul. Raul stayed out of it. That was really interesting. I think that was a message saying, don't worry, I'm here, but I'm not here. I'm actually not interfering. The one who was there was really interesting. One of them was Jose Ramon Machado Ventura, who is the one who is always described as the, the one who refused to call the meetings, who refused to call the Congress, who opposed the reforms. Whether that's true or not, one never knows quite. But the fact is he is identified with the old guard very clearly. And the other one was Ramiro Valdez. That's interesting. Now there's another story there. I'm not going to go into that, but he's always there. He is always there. He always keeps on being around the edge. He actually, incidentally, is notionally number three within the Council of State. So he's clearly got authority. He's the one, in other words, who might be actually reminding, reminding the, the government that actually, yes, you can do so far. You can keep the balance, but make sure you do keep the balance. You've got to remember the phrase I always use is don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. And actually, that's one thing I think I'd finish on, that I think one thing Diaz-Canel will know is that when the party talks ideology, it isn't just Marxism, it isn't just communism, it's actually la revolución. It's actually keeping those valores, making sure that the baby does not go out with the bathwater, because let's face it, there are large numbers of Cubans who do not want that baby to go out with the bathwater, and you've got to keep them on side as well. And I'll finish on that. Thanks. <laughs> who's, uh, who's at Kuhai, which is Havana's Technological University in the Department of Architecture and Plan Plan, um, as is Joycelyn, they both work in the same department, but their contribution to the discussion will be a little bit different, because they, they work from slightly different angles on, on the areas that they work on. Um, so I, I'm going to start with Ricardo, if, um, if we can do that talking about the economy in the broadest perspective. And I think what we'll um, have from Jorge and Joycelyn is a picture of much more from, well, from Havana in particular, but in what these changes are meaning for Havana cities, where most of Cubans live. Thank you, Ricardo. Thank you. And yes, I'm an economist. I'm going to talk about Cuba's economy. Uh, you know, one thing that, uh, you know, my presentation is going to be, of course, more focused on not only Cuba's economy, but also uh, the reform process that Raul started uh, roughly 10 years ago. But I do want to uh, say some, you know, some words before I uh, move to that, because I think that is also, I mean, that will allow you to understand better what uh, these uh, two colleagues uh, are going to explain later on, which is, um, of course, there was an important change in Cuba starting with the revolution in all possible areas in the society and in the economy. But it's also you know, fair to say that Cuba's economy started changing in many important ways in the early 90s. So the economy went through almost a collapse during those years following the collapse of the Soviet Union and the uh, uh, demise of the socialist, so-called real socialism in Eastern Europe. And with the economy also, many other things started changing in Cuba. Uh, socially speaking, there has been tremendous change in the country in the last almost 30 years. So that is also important to, to bear in mind, because what Raul started in 2007, roughly, uh, had precedence. 
in all the reforms that the government introduced in the early 90s. And actually, some of, of, of these more recent reforms had to do or have to do with expanding in important ways what was done before. So that's something that is, I think, uh, very important to understand. Uh, so uh, I think it's also uh, important to uh, you know, state uh, at least some of the public and much discussed goals of the reforms that Raul started in 2007, essentially. So there was a clear, in my opinion, assessment, objective assessment from the government at, that, at the time that our economy had been underperforming for a long time and that we needed to change that so that we could actually uh, keep some of the most uh, uh, cherished achievements of revolution in the social areas, with the social services and, and, and the connected uh, areas. So that was, uh, and you know, Raul changed in that sense uh, pretty much the, the discourse in the country saying that uh, our priority is the economy. And you could see that, uh, you know, essentially in every public appearance, like, there was a shift away from international issues and what was going on in the world to uh, the domestic economy and the, you know, all the issues connected to, to, to that. And there were two other things like, that the government started discussing uh, 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 in, in depth connected to you know, in boosting the economic performance in overall. That was uh, that there has to be changes in the ownership structure which is, of course, kind of a sensitive issue in Cuba and continues to be uh, to date. And also that somehow Cuba needed to find a new way to connect to the international economy. That was not necessarily new in some ways because there have been, well, tourism, international tourism became a sort of a key industry in Cuba already in the 90s. But also that there had been like foreign investment and, and there was also kind of a diversification in the country's economic, central economic links away from, of course, it's ex-Soviet Union and Eastern Europe to Western Europe, Canada, Latin America, and increasingly China. But uh, th there was an important discussion about that. And of course, uh, there was this uh, uh, important goal about uh, we want to maintain a fair distribution of income distribution and also to continue providing high quality of, uh, and universal social services for all Cubans. So essentially seeing the, the, the first three of those goals as uh, means to achieve the, the fourth one. Uh, it's also uh, important to say that uh, Cuba went through a, a quite a serious financial crisis from 2000, late 2008 to 2010. And I think that, all, that was uh, important in the sense that uh, that crisis made obvious that uh, the economy was weak and uh, the system had many flaws and that we needed to act uh, to address those uh, challenges. Um, and essentially, well, if you take uh, the first lineamientos, the, the program that the government adopted in, 20, in 2011, which I think is, a, is also a demonstration that this time the government wanted more structure in its approach to uh, economic policy making and also changing the perspective from short term to more medium term to low, hopefully long term. You could see that most of what's been done or at least discussed in the country in the last eight years or so can be clustered in these four areas. So changes in the ownership structure, so expanding the home of the domestic private sector, but also talking about uh, introducing co cooperatives in sectors older than agriculture, uh, and of course foreign capital. Um, this uh, idea about, uh, of course, now our economy has changed already in, in, in many important ways, and it will continue changing uh, for many years to come. So there is also a reflection about the need to change how the government intervenes in the economy. So far, what we've had is a, is a hybrid model in that sense. So a lot of uh, central planning, let's say more or less old style. But growing, like uh, we see that there is a growing uh, tendency to 
incorporate uh, more indirect regulation of the economy. So of course, the more uh, knowledge state sector you have, the more you will need that. Because you cannot control the economy the way you, uh, you did it before. Uh, well, this issue again about the integration into the world economy, there's been several steps done in that area. I would like to highlight not only the new role being given to uh, foreign direct investment, uh, which uh, we can see one example, clear example of that in the Madrid Special Development Zone, which is a new sort of a new initiative by the government introduced in 2013, aimed at not only uh, you know give foreign investors uh, additional incentives in the area, but also to somehow you know. Uh, uh, open the door for Cuba to participate in uh, uh, the logistics and you know becoming sort of a participating that market in the wider uh, Caribbean uh, region. Of course, there was a need to also move Havana's port to a, to a new location because of the constraints to accommodate a bigger ship um, vessels. That's a, so the port was losing competitiveness out of that and. This area is very sensitive in Cuba, and I think uh, there we, we have, we've seen uh, much more this, uh, 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 progress in the last eight years, which is, okay, a reflection about uh, Cuba also needs to update the way it approaches social policies. Many reasons for that, but one that clearly comes to my mind is it's no longer a very egalitarian society. And those policies that we still have were designed for a different country. So we now need to take into account that uh, new reality. So there have been efforts in that, uh, in that area, but I think progress has been uh, quite modest, I think. Uh, achievements of uh, those uh, eight years, 10 years of uh, reforms. In my, of course, this is my personal opinion, and some of this actually can be contested from many points of view. But, uh, well, after entering ne ne negotiations with some of Cuba's main uh, creditor nations, uh, most of Cuba's old debt have been, uh, has been restructured in, I would say, favorable terms for the country. There are still some issues out there, but uh, in general, we, we can say that the, the, you know, that's something that... Uh, we've uh, produced in the last eight years. And I think if, if it has paved the way for, for Cuba also to embrace uh, in, in, in better terms the international financial community. I mean, even challenging circumstances, it's fair to assume that uh, the government has uh, been able to um, maintain uh, a significant degree of macroeconomic stability. I mean, if you look at prices and other key macroeconomic indicators, you don't see big fluctuations there. Of course, uh, we need to qualify that by saying that that was a shift without undergoing the most significant macroeconomic challenge for the government, which is currency unification. So this is something that we need to be... Um, I'm only half of my No, like, uh, I will rush. Uh, well, well, there's been growth, significant, I have to say, we'll show some numbers later on, but in, in the private and corporate sector. Uh, well, Cuba, well, I would say Cuba, the United States, but uh, I think Cuba, of course, uh, uh, put like, a lot of political capital to fix, somehow they really start fixing relations with the United States. Uh, as I said, there's a new role for FDI, uh, also, reduction in the government's share in you know, total spending in, in, the, in the country. And at least uh, the government not accepted that uh, the, uh, sorry, there is a misspelling there, a dual currency system uh, is more like a liability now and it needs to be phased out. Of course, the question right now is like how we do that without creating uh, more troubles in our, in, in our economy. So let's now look at some numbers uh, quickly. So, you know, I want you to see there's three things that uh, haven't changed that much in these eight years, despite the government's efforts. One is 
if we measure overall economic performance by looking at GDP growth, real GDP growth, well, there hasn't been a big change there. <coughs> there is a discussion about Cuba's numbers. And it is true that we can discuss probably that in the, during the questions. But uh, uh, well, it's, it's, it would be hard to argue that Cuba became like a fast growing economy. And that is precisely what those numbers are telling us. Growth has been slow. Second thing, even though the government tried hard, it couldn't uh, 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 increase significantly the level of uh, investment. And that is a problem for the country. So regardless of what you do in, the, in, in other areas of your economic model, if investment doesn't uh, increase, it will be very hard to achieve faster economic growth. The other problem is exports. We restructure our debt, meaning that now we have to pay more money. But now we're producing less money because we're exporting less. Of course, again, there are many factors behind that performance, but uh, that is a key aspect, and that explains in, la, in uh, to, to a great extent the balance of, frame, uh, balance of payment crisis that Cuba is going through right now. It's a key, it's, it's, it's a key problem, and actually it is connected to uh, a change in our reform in the currency system. But that can be expanded. So here you see, essentially, if you export less, then in a country that has very perfect access to international financial markets, you need to adjust by quitting inputs. Quitting inputs in a small economy, small open economy, means that your economy is going to grow necessarily slower. And you don't want that. You want to change that. So we haven't been able to break this vicious uh, uh, cycle. We did manage, or the economy did manage to now, uh, let's say, uh, to make some sectors, key sectors, infrastructure sectors and commercial services, to grow faster than the, than the, than the average for the, for the entire economy. Not necessarily so for agricultural manufacturing. This is a, a problem for the country. So we succeeded in this, but not necessarily in the, in the other two. So there has been an important change in where jobs are created in Cuba. This bar here is jobs losses in the public sector, almost one million jobs. And where at least some of those jobs have been created, uh, which is essentially the private sector, including agriculture, cooperatives and, and new private farmers. Um, but not only that, so we also know now that uh, there is a problem with informality. This is, uh, these bars, so they're essentially the working age population. And what we see is that uh, there are less former jobs out there, an increase, a significant increase in, 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 in the percentage, the share of that population that is now formally employed. That in a country that is aging very fast, I think she will talk a little bit about that. Whose productivity is not growing fast either. And a country that also suffers from emigration. So I think the, that picture is quite a, a complicated. Well, challenges, in my opinion, well, it's a pending monetary reform, but I think we'll hear a lot about that in the coming months and years. One of the biggest tasks for the government. As it looks ahead. And there is also a question about fiscal sustainability. More recently, Cuba's fiscal deficits uh, have been on the rise. Uh, there is a, an issue around our external finances, the combination of our debt, uh, foreign debt investment, our lack of access to most international financial institutions, and uh, our poor export performance. As I said, Cuba is currently now like undergoing uh, a balance of payment crisis that is putting like additional pressure on the government's uh, economic policies. Well, um, it seems now that at least for, for the beginning of this year that the tourism boom that we had for the last three years is, 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 is over. So at least all the way through March, uh, arrivals were down 7%, including 50% reduction in visitors from the United States. Uh, and now, you know, part of the new visitors are also from cruise ships, tend to spend less money. And in any case, Americans will were not in Cuba for, for being high spenders. 
So the impact of that on income is more than proportional to, the, to, to those numbers. And there is an issue about infrastructure. Probably we'll see that in the discussion about DESI. Thank you very much. Yes, Canelo has got a lot of challenges on the political side and on the economic side. So let's um, just to say, you know, in introducing Jorge, Jorge um, is working with UCL and, and as Joyce on a, on a project on Havana um, on sustainable mobility in Havana. So we've actually been working very closely in the last months and years, actually, a couple of years now. But um, so I'd invite you to talk again 15 minutes. Um, everybody's been doing incredibly well so far, so uh, <laughs> if you can keep up performance. As uh, Emily said before, my name is Jorge Peña Diaz, I'm the, head, the, lead, the leader of the research group in, at the University of Technological University of Havana. It's the counterpart to our colleagues at the University One of the missions is to run a research group that tries to have an impact in decision making through science, but I'm not going to get deeper into that today. Cool. So the name of this the title of this presentation is NETS 500, and it's uh, using actually as excuse the fact that uh, Havana is very close to celebrate its 500th anniversary next year. So this has thrown uh, a lot of uh, Debate, discussion, unfortunately, not as much uh, action. We usually even thought right now there is a very interesting uh, program that is being trying to put forward in order to, to bring and to put the capital at the level which should have in such an important uh, celebration. But for us, it's, uh, it's a good opportunity to. Why wait the debate that has been taking place for years on what is the role of the city, the capital, what are the challenges it has to face in a very important So as you probably know, the city was founded around the bay in 1519. Originally, it was a little bit, uh, was in the southern coast of Havana. It was pretty much connected this development of the city, the capital, that today's 15 municipalities, 2.2 million inhabitants, was pretty much linked to the development of the of the bay. Havana was a, a place where all the gold and the silver from the new world was collected in order to be brought to Spain afterwards, and therefore the city grew with a very, very peculiar um, economic structure that was pretty much linked to to the services. Today, the city can be presented like this, uh, several municipalities, as I said before, 2.2 million inhabitants, but it's quite noticeable the difference between the smallest municipalities and the largest one. It has to do with the differences in, in density. But we are particularly interested in these different phases of the development of the city. And if we look back roughly 100 years, we can identify at least four main stages that are pretty much linked to a significant uh, social, economic, and political shifts in the, in the country. Experience completely different uh, accents, and particularly the period after the 90s, as it was explained before, after the crisis of the 90s, has pretty much to do with the current situation. We think that uh, this threshold between 2011 and today is still some kind of, a, of an interface that is marking a completely new stage of this development. So in the moment, this was the idea that was projected for Havana. So this uh, modernistic development in the, this is particularly in the east of Havana, that was possible to develop probably after 1958. And this is actually what we have today. So you see that none of these buildings <coughs> happen. It's was a completely different uh, model, but still is there the, the city waiting for, for this new phase. As everything in Cuba, this was pretty much marked by the impact of the policy of the United States uh, towards Cuba. It's a continued uh, policy of creating difficulties for, for 
Cuba, but they became particularly acute after the 90s, uh, when the crisis of the socialist bloc had a tremendous impact in the entire system of the country, but particularly in the, in the cities. One of the most important impacts, as it was mentioned before, was precisely the creation of these two different markets. So on one hand side, the hard currency, one on the other hand side, the, the Cuban peso economy. It means different qualities, different diversities, access by some people to the best quality ones. And therefore, it remains one of the challenges we have to face. But it also has a spatial impact because uh, it not only meant that some groups have uh, privileged access to this new hard currency, but also that some areas uh, concentrated the benefits of this uh, uh, new economy that got activated after, after the 90s. Of course, it had a combination of what the city inherited from the previous moment, areas that were better off in advance, versus other areas that were uh, in a much vulnerable situation. So the result of this uh, combination is in a way uh, a pattern in which we can identify today something we have called the blue strip. It's an area where there is a concentration of hotels, the infrastructure that is working for this uh, <coughs> economy that is connected to, to the international market, the area that is to be offered at the best quality uh, of the city. And on the other hand side, what we call Deep Havana, which is the area that is south of the harbor, where there are no foreign investments, where the insignificant share uh, of the population of the city So this kind of dual city that has been uh, <coughs> opened up in the context of Cuba, in which uh, there is a very strong social net that secures access to, for example, health and education to everyone in a very significant way, the city is also facing, in the context of an exceptional uh, pathway, is also facing the same problem that many other cities in the world are facing. For example, how to deal with the impact of uh, cruise ships uh, tourism in the, in the country and the problems it brings for identity and other problems. But in a way, it's, uh, we can present this uh, situation as the fabric on top of which the new reform that was presented before has to operate. And therefore, the impact it might have will be pretty much uh, uh, framed by these uh, uh, hmm. characteristics. So this is a, a graphic I took from a paper from Emily that is showing precisely that uh, the economy is having uh, some development. This graphic, this chart I found is quite interesting because it shows in a way the challenges that the Cuban society is facing. On the one hand side we have been, signif we have been continuously improving our uh, social indicators, in this case this is health, but the movement of the economic side has been relatively restricted. Yeah? So if the movement has not been uh, that big as for example China started here and the, uh, the development is quite significant. So what this means that the city is under pressure, both from inside and from outside. And at this uh, moment, we, for example, have already uh, some uh, very interesting plants. This is a, uh, an image that, the, that was published by the physical planning Institute that is showing some kind of a national uh, development uh, plan, and you can see that in the in this part there is an interesting concentration. These three uh, arrows are actually uh, showing three important uh, points in the northern coast of the of the city. On the one hand side, the most important tourist-oriented uh, beach uh, and so on and beach. Uh, resort we have, which is Baradero, in the other stream, the special area of Mariela, in the very middle, the, the capital, and particularly, again, the harbor of uh, Havana. So this, the, what is interesting in this context is to 
to talk about the fact that what is happening in Havana is not only related to the dynamic of what's going on inside of the city itself, but also to what is happening outside. And for example, this has meant a significant transformation of the area of the, of the harbor. And therefore, this pressure from inside and outside is bringing the city to some kind of a crossroad that is at the same time marking the entrance into a completely new stage of urban development. <coughs> and in this context, the future development of the harbor with all this symbolic meaning, because the city was founded there, because the development and the character of the city was pretty much limited to what happened, has been happening there during the last five centuries, it puts the city into a completely new situation that is entering, it is passing through this gateway that is bringing into a completely new one. One of the drivers of this new situation is related to tourism. These, for example, are some um, hotels that were built in the... There is one that is from the 70s, but and there are three of them that are from the from the 90s, but it shows the kind of uh, <coughs> approach that the tourism industry had at that time, so it was a building that was somehow isolated and disconnected from the urban uh, fabric. It's actually, they are in Havana, but they are in an area where there is a, there are two kilometers where there is no one single house. It's a completely different set of uh, things. Nevertheless, in the new context, uh, we are the, the country, Cuba, is already in the capacity to invest, for example, in tourism. And this is a very controversial a <laughs> new hotel that is being built in, a, in the core of the, of the city, really in an area that has a very strong meaning for the identity of the city. And the model there is the same, but the context, is, uh, the context in which it is operating is completely different, and therefore, the challenges that we have to face are in a completely new dimension. So it means that uh, the apparatus, the tools that we have had along these years in order to deal with the city have to change. Many of them have become obsolete. We have to learn from other experiences how to deal with this new situation and how to smooth and how to make more effective the the character of this uh, presentation for the future. I have three minutes. <laughs> <laughs> and in this context, we have been, there is a very interesting debate going on in the, in the city. This is, a, we have presented it a couple of times already, so it's these 12 paradigms of what the, the city, Havana, of the 21st century should be. And you see that pretty much connected to to the paradigms of the Cuban society for the last 60 years. There is something also new, that is that Cuba is very advanced right now in the implementation of the new urban agenda. It is considered by the United Nations as a, an advanced case in this direction. And this puts us in a, in a, in a completely new direction. So I think it's, it's in a way uh, one of the first steps to kill the dinosaur. And of course, many of these components are pretty much dealing with the idea of uh, uh, making use of the investment that the human society has been doing for the last 60 years in the human capital, getting through uh, a society that is more linked to, to the knowledge and production. But at the same time, it means that we have to deal with this new situation in which the meaning of a space such as a Prado, this traditional place, was used, for example, by this uh, fashion global actor. Actually, the hotel I mentioned before is used at that site, and also the way that tourism is dealing with that. And in this context, the harbor becomes the scenario in which this new stage of urban development is going to take place. It is probably, many people consider it, the big project of the 21st century for Havana. Probably the one that is marking the next 500 years of the development of the city. Like the point where these differences of a strong and better off neighborhoods and weaker neighborhoods, all of them come together. So the way we deal with that and we understand the proximity to this harbor and the opportunities it opens is going to be pretty much uh, one of the elements that is going to be showing whether we are doing it properly or not. And in this context, 
I mean, I'm using this already famous uh, uh, poster because it has the same number, the same title of this uh, event right now. We know that there is a continuity. It was referred also before. And the first presenter was actually talking about this meeting that took place a couple of weeks ago. And it's really significant that in the very short period in which Diaz uh, Canel has been uh, acting as a president, in many moments the capital has been popping up as a significant component of this. Uh, so we can make the connection, and it's clear that there is at the same time continuity and also changes. It's very uh, likely, and we hope so, that the policy of supporting uh, an equity-based development regarding access to education, healthcare, and other many aspects will continue to be expressed in the coming policy. That is very clear, but at the same time, very likely a better understanding of the role that the capital of the city has and therefore how to deal with this complex situation that we are facing. Thank you very much. So, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll just let Joycey follow straight on and introduce your, your title. Yes. Five hundred years. Next five hundred years. Yeah. <laughs> Good afternoon. And. Uh, as the first presenter said, he was uh, he talked about the past, and I think I'm going to to talk about the future, because aging in Cuba have only 10% uh, from my point of view of what would be happen uh, about that in the city, but also in the country in general in the society. And uh, I have some charts and some figures uh, that allow us to uh, understand what is happening in the country. But first, I want to show you some qualitative figures of uh, what to do. The future of this, that past uh, is in our hands, in the hands of the present. And I think this is very important what to do in, with the city and with the country, with these very valuous people who have been growing with the revolution and growing with the, uh, with the country. And they make the country, in a sense, with us, of course. And uh, this is uh, the main reason I want to talk about aging in relation with the environment, the built environment. I'm an architect, and I think it is not all, only to face this, uh, this new challenge, this, this new social challenge and economical challenge, but also a challenge for the city, to change the city, to give them another kind of uh, uh, options, another kind of life, in, uh, not only because we have a, a, a social problems or an economical problems, but also because they have another needs for, uh, because of the revolution also. Uh, as you see, the aging in Cuba uh, have two reasons. First, the, the less births each year in this month, and, and at the same time, less uh, death. And then it means a very high um, aging in the country that have been producing a curve, an exponential curve in the last 10 years. In 10 years ago, we, we were one of the five, or, uh, between five and 10 countries in the world, in the America uh, that have a, 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 a very high level of uh, aging. And in this moment, one, uh, we are the second one. And this is a big challenge, a big change for the uh, last 10 years. And this uh, kind of uh, pyramids uh, show how it changed and how it would be changed a little bit more. And that means, nice. that means in some years, we will be very dependent 
the, these people, and of course the kids, and all of these people with several problems, will be very dependent of the uh, population in this active economic life uh, that, can, uh, that have to work for the others. This part of the, of the population have to work uh, almost for the 50% of the, um, of the uh, population. Uh, at the same time, the forecast about the female population for the next years of to 2050, you see, with the, uh, this uh, female population will be less and less. Not only uh, uh, the, the population in the age of being pregnant, but also all the population between 15 and 50 years old. And it means a lower uh, birth, uh, level of birth in the country. And it, uh, you can see also uh, it is happening more than more. In this moment, the, um, the, uh, each woman, it's, the rate of uh, birth is around 1.5. And this means uh, the population will uh, decrease and uh, <coughs> is aging because the people live in a little bit more. And uh, that means also we have been passed from a moderate and uh, um, level of aging to advanced level of, of aging because of the um, aging uh, rates and also the uh, ah, fertility. Thank you. <laughs> Next. And in the, in the world, Cuba is this blue line, is almost, is a, mm, higher, above of, uh, the developed countries, is above, above one of the more Asian countries in, in Latin America, of course, uh, above the America, uh, Latin American and the Caribbean and the world. And it's just uh, getting in the same point of uh, Japan and Germany. And that's meant a lot. This uh, explains a little bit what is happening with this exponential curve and what could be happening in the country. For us, it's not the same as other countries. Uh, these developed countries, because uh, because of the, uh, the the age of development of these countries, they can afford to face this very quickly. For Cuba, it's not the same. I will support this, or I'm supporting this with the uh, things that my colleagues have been explaining. I have not to um, go deep and uh, more about it because it's. Easy to understand for us is not the same. And if, if, if you see which is this relation of dependency in the, uh, in the next uh, 25 years or in the next 30 years, it means uh, a, a, a higher dependency in, in the next 20 years. And this um, try to, uh, this we, have to be with the next, with a, another vision. There is another uh, kind of um, um, charts that can show which is the situation. But the most important one for us is that the people in this age wants to work and want to uh, give more to the society. And just uh, a, a, a quick analysis of that, uh, this, uh, in this moment, next year, we will be 60 years of uh, our revolution, uh, uh, that's Trump in uh, 1959. And this means the people who made the revolution, the people who worked 
the, the uh, Federal Revolution is now about 70 <coughs> years. But the people who uh, gain the social achievement the revolution had are about 60 years also. And that means these people is very healthy and at the same time very well educated because achievements. And of course, they have better education and they have new needs for the next years. They, have, they, they want to be a, a productive people. They have to give a little bit more. Which have been the, the things, we have been the things we have been doing, not only to have these people in the parks or not only to have these homes for elderly, but also to have new kind of education for the elderly. For example, this so-called Universidad del Adulto Mayor, a university for elderly people, where they uh, can um, learn how to make a new project of life. But also, we need new uh, programs in the country, maybe new programs that allow them to uh, take the, the youngers what to do, how to develop, how to, to, to exchange, and then to have an exchange with others, and how to um, pass the experience they had, the experience they create, and keep in a high level of health and education this <laughs> our country. And, and this is our challenge also. We create new programs, new architectural programs, new um, offers for this kind of uh, uh, aging society where the uh, elderly can exchange with youngers and where we can keep what we have achieved in these uh, 60 years. Thank you.